pretty cool, pretty cool. Have a question for you. This week had my most favorite day of the year and my least favorite day of the year in the same week. Which way? Is that own? That's not own. That's own. That's own. There. There it is. It's been two years. The button either goes back or the button goes forward. I have two choices. Richard, if you could get the deacon of the week to check and make sure I've turned my thing on each week. It's the right. This week, man, we're off to a great start. Engine sputtered, but we'll be all right. This week contained my most favorite day of the year and my least favorite day of the year, and it's exactly the same day, and it's not Christmas Day. Does anybody have a clue what day that day is? Ooh, I think I heard somebody whisper it. The winter solstice. The winter solstice. Yeah, I'm about to give you a science lesson. Get ready for this. Winter solstice was December the 22nd this year. For those of you who don't remember or those of you who were born before science was discovered, let me give you a little refresher course on that. The earth, you know, doesn't rotate around straight up and down on an axis. It pivots back and forth. It goes up to 23 and a half degrees off of center back and forth. And when it pivots this way and the sun's over here and it pivots this way and we live in the northern hemisphere, then that's what gives us spring and, and, and summer uh, and summer and, and moves us on into fall. Y'all know that. But then as, as the winter comes, you know, we hit up straight and then we start leaning away from the sun. And that's what ends up giving us uh, fall and winter as we lean away from the sun. And the thing that I don't like about it, when it goes backwards, see, our days get shorter. And the winter solstice is the shortest sunshine day of the year. On this on this winter solstice, we had nine hours and 58 minutes of sunshine from the time. Well, actually, we didn't have anything because it rained. But we would have had nine hours and 58 minutes from the time the sun came up in the east, went over gray. I even got it for gray Georgia. So this like isn't somewhere. This is right here, right, right here where we live. Sun comes up, goes over our head, goes down over the horizon, nine hours and 58 minutes. To show you the difference now, at the summer solstice in June, it will be 14 hours and 17 minutes from the time the sun comes up in the east, passes over our head, and goes down in the west, 14 hours and 17 minutes of sunshine. And if it's not raining, you also get to have that brightening glow before the sun comes up, and you get to have that descending glow, waning glow as the sun sinks over the horizon. I hate the dark. I have never enjoyed the dark. I love sunshine. So the winter solstice is my least favorite day of the year because there's so little sunshine, but it's my most favorite day of the year at the same time because every day after it, there's just a smidgen more sunshine. Every day. Now this is how how uh, crazy I am. I literally look in, literally, literally look in the newspaper every day in the front of the telegraph and it'll tell you when the sun rises and when the sun sets. And do you know, 
do you know already that we have two extra minutes of sunshine since yeah, yeah if you watch it you'll see that the sun comes up a little earlier the sun sets a little later and you look at it and notice that one day they, they tag that minute onto the rise and one day they tag it onto the end but every little bit as just a little bit more sunshine every day every day there's a little more light every day eventually it'll get cold and then it'll start getting warmer again every day will be a little less dreary until one day you'll walk outside and you know this because you do it too one day you'll walk outside and it's like spring just pops out and you'll go yeah this is cool this is cool that's what I love I don't like darkness but on the darkest day of the year I have hope I have hope now I want you to listen to this guys because this is important what is the difference between a hope and a wish we tend to use those two words interchangeably they're not even close to the same Bible's got hope written all over it, all over the place. What is different between a hope and a wish? A hope is wanting something to happen and be true and thinking that it could happen and it could be true. That's hope. Hope is wanting something to happen and be true and thinking that it could happen and it could be true. Wishing is wanting something to happen and be true and that's it wanting something to happen and be true but hope is wanting something to happen and be true and thinking that actually could happen and be true see I hope for the springtime now you, you know Randy that's a little odd you know springtime's coming not necessarily God could call me home today and I'll never see another springtime Something cataclysmic could occur. If you listen to the news, the earth is probably going to explode like a Death Star somewhere. I mean, the world's coming to an end every day. Maybe that happens and we don't see a spring. But you know what? I'm hoping for spring because it usually comes and I'm hoping for that spring. I don't wish for the spring because I think it probably will come. I wish I could play the piano like Jeff Cleghorn <laughs> because we know that is never going to happen now if I sat at the piano and took lessons and practiced and practiced and practiced then I could hope that I could play like Jeff Cleghorn because there is a possibility if I keep practicing I could get there but I'm telling you this will not touch that in any meaningful way so it's only a wish you see the difference between the two it's critical we understand the difference between a wish and a hope now for your history lesson you've had science now we go to history when this scripture was written in Isaiah it was written uh, it was written in the dead of winter and I don't mean winter in like cold time I mean winter in that it was desolate that everything was dead that everything was dark Israel was a land without hope. It was a land where the only thing that could make life any worse is if it was cold and it was dark for a long time. They had been 
conquered and conquered and conquered again. If you ever get a chance and you're that kind of person, you need to look up the history of the world around 465 B.C. in that period of time. It was really a very interesting period of history. There were lots of crazy little things that were going on and political jockeying and, and countries taking over and invading and all this kind of stuff. And during that time, Persia had, Persia had invaded Israel. And there was a king by the name of Artaxerxes. That is a fun word to say. I didn't have to say it in here. I could have gone all day without it. It means nothing to you guys, but it's fun. Artaxerxes. You want to say it with me? Artaxerxes. Isn't that cool? That's a great word. So King Artaxerxes was in charge. He was the king over the whole area. They had come in. He was from Persia. They came in, overran the area. They did not have rules of engagement like we do in war now. You know, we only want to shoot the bad guys, and we want to make sure that the good guys don't get hit. In their days, there was no such thing as a good guy. When they came in, they destroyed everything. They killed as many people as they could kill. They tore as many things down as they could tear, tear down. They tore down the temple. They set it on fire. The people that they didn't kill, they took the healthiest people that were there, rounded them all up, and sold them into slavery all over the Mediterranean area to all these different states around the Mediterranean Sea. That's how Judaism got spread. One of the ways it got spread around the Mediterranean is they took these Jews and sold them into slavery. And the only people that were left in Israel were the people who were old, weak, infirm, mentally unstable. Those are the people they left behind, left to die in what they considered to be a God-forsaken, desolate land. There was no hope there. But the Persians were a different kind of conqueror. We're accustomed to studying Rome and the Pax Romana and the fact that the Romans ruled with an iron fist. If you ever disagreed with Rome, Rome just came in and killed you. The Persians were different. They wanted to assimilate you into the culture. They wanted you to keep your culture. They were into what I consider to be true diversity. They wanted to celebrate who you were but assimilate you into the whole is what they were looking to do. So they encouraged the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem, to be devout Jews, but to be a part of Persia. And so Artaxerxes left, Ezra entered the scene, and Ezra's goal was to make the entire land of Israel and all of its surroundings a viable colony of Persia. The scripture we read from Isaiah is a celebration of hope for what that land will become. And when you read the scripture, you would have heard, I will greatly rejoice. Earth brings forth sprouts. Righteousness goes forth as brightness. Her salvation is a burning torch. Nations will see her righteousness. All the kings will see your glory. You shall be a crown of beauty. We have hope. We want to be great again. The only thing I could think of of a modern day thing that might pull it to our mind, don't groan out loud and don't cheer when I say it, but it's Donald Trump. And his slogan, make America great again. That's what these people were thinking. Make Israel great again. We're going to be a great nation again. We're going to be powerful again. People are going to know who we are again. We're going to be somebody again. The people that rule the world are going to lean back and say, we know who God is with. That's what the scripture says. And it comes to pass. That, that idea comes to pass. And you could stop right there. 
with this scripture and you would have done a good job. That would, that would be the historical setting and how this scripture, this prophecy played out in history. And you could stop right there and you'd be done. And you'd have done a good job. That's the way this thing works. And some people stop right there. But scripture sometimes has dual layers of meaning. And this is one of those scriptures that has a dual layer of meaning. Because if you wait 485 years, 480 years, a man is going to come into a synagogue and he's going to sit down. And somebody's going to hand him a scroll and he's going to open that scroll and he's going to read from it. And the man's name is going to be Jesus. He's going to be uh, all grown up, no baby in the manger thing anymore. He's going to be a guy that has a beard. He's going to have long hair. He'll be as clean as somebody in his day probably could be clean in a land that didn't have washers and dryers and detergent and shampoo and the soaps like we have. He probably had brown hair, probably a bit wiry, probably had olive skin with piercing green eyes. Now, not everybody that comes from that region looks that way, but that is pretty much a characteristic of folks that come from that ethnic group. He'd have very rough hands because his father was a carpenter and he would have helped his father do his work. He would have had muscles, he would have had arms because he had to carry lumber and he had to carry rocks and he had to carry tools. And he had a voice that would grab your attention when he spoke. On this particular Sabbath, because he went to the, Sabbath, he went to the synagogue every Sabbath, the scripture says, as was his habit. On this particular Sabbath, the ruler of the synagogue, they did church a little differently than what we do. They have a ruler who's sort of the priest, preacher kind of guy. When they come in, he'd hand one person a scroll from the prophets, one person a scroll from the Torah. They would read something from that, and then somebody else would deliver a sermon on what was read. So on that day, the leader of the, of the, of the uh, synagogue pulls out a, a scroll, and then he gives it to Jesus to read. And this is how Luke tells that story. It says that it came to pass, and he came to, it didn't come to pass, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, just by accident, I suppose. He unrolled the scroll and he found a place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Imagine this scene. He reads that. He has a voice that commands attention. People have known a little bit about him. He rolls the scroll up without saying a word, gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. And it's silent. And everybody looks at him. It says, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, that means this is the only thing he said. He said other things, but they didn't matter. This sentence is what was important. 
And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus read Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. He didn't interpret it like we did though. He knew that it applied to Israel back during Artaxerxes and Ezra's time. He knew the things that it foretold historically had come to pass. But he knew there was a secondary level. He knew this was a messianic prophecy. He knew it had deeper meaning. He knew that it had an eternal hope. Something that we want to happen and be true and think that it will happen and it will be true. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 61 are prophecies talking about the coming Messiah. Every Jew of that era would have known that. They had studied it. Joseph, his daddy, earthly daddy, his friends, Saul that later became Paul, all of his colleagues, everybody who went to synagogue regularly would know this. Just like every one of us that's gone to church, any in our life, has studied John 3.16 at some point. We all know what it means. We understand, we know, and we know that we know that we know that Jesus saves. And they knew that they knew that they knew that a Messiah was going to come and was going to proclaim the good news. They had hope that this was going to happen, not a wish that it would happen, but a hope that it would happen because they knew one day it would come to pass. And Jesus is saying here, today this happened. It's what we celebrated this week. We know that Jesus came so that our sins would be forgiven and we'd be given a new life so that he would be our Messiah. And slowly but surely, slowly but surely, we're beginning to understand what that means. I don't mean slowly but surely this hour. I mean slowly but surely we're working this out. So we as a congregation, we as people, we as individuals understand what it means to have new life. But Isaiah didn't stop there. He, he went further and then you get verses 10, which is where we started reading, and go through chapter 62, verse you can go all the way to verse 5. It's talking about Israel in Ezra's time, but it's talking about the church. It's talking about the church. Where we live right now, this minute, this time in history, it's talking about the church. Now think about the church where we are right this minute. The church to most people seems irrelevant. And if you lean back and you really think about it and you look at the evidence in the world around us and the way society is turning, you really can get to the point where you think we are destined to disappear. That there'll come a day that we don't exist anymore. There'll come a day where there'll be one or two Christians scattered about here and there, just a weird little cult that'll be off on a fringe somewhere. I wonder, are we destined to remain a, a caricature of what it means to be a Christian, that we argue over things that don't amount to a hill of spit, that we don't really make a difference in the world around us, that we don't know how to show people God's mercy? The evidence would say that we're going to keep going down that road but what does God's word say? What does he say about the church here? Now the prophecy came true. Messianic prophecy. Jesus is going to come. Jesus came. Now he's talking about the church almost in the same breath. Maybe that's going to come true too. 
And maybe this is what it says. It says, I will greatly rejoice, <clears throat> excuse me, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. The I here, we make everything in our culture, we make everything individual. The I thing here is not individual. The I here is us, the church. And he's saying that the church will rejoice in the Lord, not an individual. But we will rejoice. We will greatly rejoice in the Lord. He says that my soul shall exult in my God. We don't use the word exult anymore. Do you know what exult means? Exult means you're so happy you can't even talk anymore. Have you ever had a moment like that in your life? Where you were just so absolutely overcome with happiness that it was just, duh! You didn't know what to say. You didn't know what to do. You didn't know whether to dance, scream, holler, fall on the ground, grunt like a pig. You had no clue what to do. You were so overcome. That's what he's saying here. The soul of the church will be so happy, it will be overwhelmed. What's going to cause that? What would cause that to happen? We were talking, we had a, man, this seems like a year ago and it was Monday. We had the, the staff Christmas party. And I won't call any names, but we have a brother in here that went to one of them Pentecostal churches for a little while. And the brother in that Pentecostal church got out of his seat. Mm. Ran around the sanctuary. All the way around. Went back up where he was sitting. And he wasn't the only one that did that in this church. And we look at the folks and we say, those folks, they got something. They're a little on the strange side of things. And I'm not advocating that we all start jumping over pews and hear somebody get hurt and sue me. Don't do that. But what would get you to that point? What would get us, the church, to a point where we could not sit still in the pew? What would get us as a church to a point that before I could say, let's stand together, half of you would already be on your feet, ready to go, let's do this thing. What would get us to the point of waking up on Sunday morning and going, I got to go. Man, it's, I got to go. I got to get there. What would get us to the point where we're sitting at work and somebody at work says that this is going on in my life and all hell's broken loose and my kids are doing and my wife. And what would get us to a point where our answer to them would be, brother, you got to come to church with me. I got some folks you got to meet. You got to sit down with my Sunday school class. Those folks are going to help you. They've walked the road. They've been where you've been. They'll be right there with you. What would get us to that point? He's saying here in this scripture that one day, maybe not right now, but one day we will realize that God has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. Being saved is a big, stinking deal. Being saved is a big deal. If you don't believe me, if we could ask them, let's ask Earl Goldsberry today if being saved is a big deal. Let's ask Brother Jim, Sister Jody. Let's ask Carolyn Ling. Is being saved a big deal? When you sang that song, Jeff, I'm sitting here going, man, we didn't talk about this. And there it is right there. 
Being saved is a big deal. Being saved for these families is a big deal. They don't mourn as people who have no hope. They don't wish their loved one was in heaven. They don't wish that they'd be in heaven with them one day. They have hope because they know I've not experienced it yet. But Jesus says it's going to happen, and I believe it's going to happen, and one day I'll go through it just as surely as the spring is coming. I will go through it, and it's going to make a difference. Being saved is a big deal. Ask the man who made the single really bad sinful choice whose life was irrevocably changed and people told him, you have ruined your life. And then he met Jesus and he walks with his head held high and he has a purpose greater than he's ever known before with a life that was not ruined. Ask the woman who made the single really bad sinful choice who was so young that she gave the baby up or she aborted the baby or she kept the baby but was a really bad mama for a while until one day she met Jesus and now she's clothed in garments of salvation and she walks proudly with a purpose and she sleeps at night, restful sleep where the bad dreams are gone away because she knows whose clothes she's wearing. She's dressed in salvation. She has a robe of righteousness about her shoulder. Ask the man who was never good enough until he met Jesus. Ask the woman who was always better than everybody else until she met Jesus. Ask the, ask the sneak. Ask the wild child. Ask the headstrong. Or ask the just plain irresponsible who endured the solstice of their life engulfed in the worst darkness they have ever known in the history of their existence and they get in that worst darkness and open their eyes and there's Jesus standing there saying put on my clothes I'll get you out of this mess let's move on that's what will make us move that's what he's, Jesus is saying that the church's message is that will make the church lifted up so high in the eyes of the world. It's the only thing we have to offer people. You can't ruin your life. Your life can never be wasted. You are never so far gone that Jesus cannot clothe you in garments of salvation and garments of righteousness. That's our message. We didn't make this up. We were given this special delivery by the baby that came that we worshipped last week who will die on a cross for us come Easter. It's a message of hope. What did we say hope was? I've talked to people and I'll tell them this story and I'll tell them what the scripture says and they will say to me, I wish that could happen. No, don't wish it can happen. It's hope, hope, something we want to happen or be true and believe that it actually can happen and be true. Whosoever, the scripture says, can be clothed in garments of salvation and righteousness. It says, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and a bride adorns herself with jewels. Why those words? Why did he pick that? Why did he pick priest? What's a priest's job? It's the job of the church 
Spread the good news that there's a God, that he's good, and he'll wash away your filth and make you new. Y'all know I troll Facebook. I'm hooked on it. I really need to, like, put it up for a couple of weeks to sort of break the addiction. But anytime I find myself just sitting still and nothing to do, I've got my phone out, and I'm flipping up the pages and looking at stuff. And I ran across this article, and it said, and you know how they're all worded. Y'all know how all these articles are worded. Uh, the prime minister of France said this and Obama will never be the same and you have to look and see what it is well the prime minister of France said that the United States is green and, and that you know it's just some stupid something but they make it sound so big well this one said 19 people who are atheists that you never dreamed they were atheists well, well we gotta look that one up who, who would never do you know Morgan Freeman is an atheist Morgan Freeman he was God twice <laughs> you know and he's a, he's an atheist I sort of had hopes that when I died and got to heaven that voice was going to be the one to meet me there you know he's got the best I don't know why his voice got oh I can't even imitate it Penn Gillette Anybody know Penn and Teller? You know the, the, the comedy, comedy guys, Penn and Teller? Penn Gillette, he's the big guy. Penn Gillette is. He's an atheist. But of all of them, he is noted as being the most friendly towards Christians. Because, he said, and I, this is a paraphrase, because, he said, if I knew that my friends were going to die and go to a horrible place. And I had information that would keep them from doing that and would send them to a wonderful place. I'd tell everybody I knew too. He just doesn't believe that's true. But he's not going to beat you up for it because you do believe it's true. That's what the job of the church is. Tell everybody. It's not hopeless. You don't wish that there would be something else coming. There is something else coming, just as sure as the spring will come in just very short order. And then he talks about a bride. A bride waits for her groom to appear. The church is not only telling the message, the church is waiting for the bride, waiting for the groom to appear. We're waiting for the Lord to appear. We have hope. That he will appear again one day. We have hope that we will meet him face to face when our time comes. The New Testament is full of the word hope. I hope you've read that. I hope. That's good. I hope you've read that and that you've thought as you're reading that, why does he keep saying hope? A hope of salvation. Paul says in Romans 5, 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of the Lord. Uh, Romans 5, 5, hope does not put us to shame. Romans 8, 24, in the hope we were... In this hope we were saved. Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Colossians 1, 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. What is this hope? What is this hope? This hope is us wanting Jesus to save us, to make us new, to bring us along with him side by side. We want that to happen. We want that to be true. But more than a wish, 
We know, we have faith, we believe that this will happen and this will be true. Just as surely as I know that spring is coming, I know that my Savior is coming too, I can't guarantee it. It's not within my power to guarantee it. I can't guarantee spring's going to come. But you know what? I know that it will. I believe that it will. And if I wait and watch long enough, I'll see it. And if I wait and watch long enough, the Messiah will come because he said he would and he will. A few other things he said here. He says in verse 11 that the church will grow and be so bold that God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. I believe right now that the church is just now breaking through the soil. I believe that people are just now starting to see shoots because we've been real comfortable for a long time. We were just seeds buried in the dirt. But now we're starting to sprout because it's time. And he says that we'll sprout up, that we'll grow so bold that God will use it to prove what is right and what is wrong in front of everyone everywhere. Randy, the cause is lost. I'm telling you right now, if this scripture is true and I believe it is, the cause is not lost. No, we're only getting on the tracks. We're just now getting ready. He says in verse 12 that the Messiah will never be silent, that he will never be quiet until the day that the church's righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning bush. Eventually, the nations will see the church's righteousness and all of the kings of the earth will see the glory of the church and we will be given a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. World's going to see. Church is going to stand up and the world's going to see. They'll be looking to the church because church will be showing them Jesus. And Jesus will be talking until that point. And then he'll step back as the glory of the Lord fills the church. And then he gives the church a new name. And that new name is a recurrent theme. If you go to Revelations, you'll find that you're going to be given a white stone. And on that white stone, a new name will, your new name will be written. And you go, that's weird. It's not weird. It's not weird at all. Everybody in here that's married or has a boyfriend or girlfriend... When you first meet them, their name is whatever it is. In my case, when I first met her, her name was Renee. I call her sweetheart now. I gave her a new name. Haven't you done the same thing? It could be as ridiculous as Snookums. I know one, fa uh, one family in here, uh, the guy calls his wife Babe all the time. He's not referring to a pig. He's referring to his wife. Something sweet. He gave her a new name. We do it all the time. What God's saying here is that I'm going to give you a name that says, I love you more than anything you know. He won't call me Randy. He called me by a name that I won't even be able to stand when I hear it because I'll be so overcome I will exult in happiness. It's what God says about us. It's what God says about the church. I want to be a part of that. I want to see that day. 
I want to be a part of something that's so much bigger than me that I can do my little bitty piece in it and everybody else can do their little bitty pieces in it. And then we step back and watch the effect that it has on the world around us. I want to see the day where the church is doing what the church is supposed to do and the community of gray looks at the church and says, I have never seen anything like that before. Maybe that's the place I need to be. That's what I want to see. I want to see a place where the crime rate goes down because the church has gone out and changed so many lives that there are people out there that start to do something wrong and their old friends are going, dude, what's the matter with you? Haven't you heard? You need to come over here and talk to these people. That's what I want to see. I want to see a community. I want us to see us live in a place where the poor are fed. And there is no injustice. And that people get along with one another. And that we lift one another up. Because Jesus has led us to do that. I want to live in a place where we are free to be who we are. Not worried every minute of every day, am I doing this right? But living in a faith and a knowledge that if I'm not doing it right, he's big enough to show me. He'll get me there. Live and be free. That's what he's saying in this. When we get to that point, we will explode with happiness. The church isn't in trouble. We're not going to disappear. There's not going to come a time that your sons and your daughters, the little bitty ones sitting there, there's not going to be a time when they won't have a church to go to. Indeed, God willing, there'll be a time where their church will make our church look not so good because they'll be so full of the Spirit of the Lord. We're counting on this for you guys. We have hope for you guys. This is not my wish. I don't wish it to be true. I hope it to be true because it's going to happen because the voice, the voice of the Lord proclaimed it and he does not lie. And Father, we thank you this morning. Once again, Lord, your, your messenger dealing with such a huge message feel so inadequate to that task. But Lord, I know that I'm not the teacher. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit's the teacher. That the Holy Spirit's the one that speaks to our hearts and changes us and makes us new. And Lord, I pray in the midst of all of those words that somewhere somebody would hear And that their wish would turn into hope because they believe and they know it to be true. I pray that you save someone. I pray that you renew somebody's spirit. I pray that you take some young person in here, Lord, and let them see a vision of what they are to be in your church one day. 
And I pray for this whole church, Father, that you give a vision to each one of us of what you have called this church to be. Show us the glory of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Mention John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We've heard it five million times. Whosoever will, he says. Whosoever believeth. Do you know what that is? Hope. Hope. I don't wish I'd be saved. I hope I will. Because I know that he's in me now. And I know that when I die, he's going to take me home with him. Just as sure as I know the spring's coming. This morning, if you've not accepted, if you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, I quit, say, I, I keep, quit trying to say accepted. I want you to accept it. I want you to trust him. He said he would save you. He said he would make you a new creation. He said he would take you places you have no clue where you will go. I invite you this morning to trust him as your Savior. If you need to, bow your head and pray to him and ask him to forgive you of your sins for the time that you've run from him. Tell him you want to follow him. That you want to go where he wants you to go and you don't care where it is. I'll go. Just walk with me. That's all you got to do. I ask you to do that. If you've done it already, I'd ask you to come down and let me know. And let's baptize you. If you want to become a part of First Baptist Church, if you want to pray at the altar, if you want to pray in your chair, whatever you want to do, now's the time. You have three minutes left. And then you got to go back out and do Christmas for a little while longer.